control systems failure. Launching life pod. Navigating to nearest habitable planet. Life support online. Rations check complete. Entertainment capacity critical. Please select shortlist. Hello and welcome to Remote Outpost Games, our interview show which may bear a passing similarity to a popular tropical island themed music selection show. Our guests are stranded on a remote outpost far from the Galnet comms channels and with no immediate hope of rescue. We ask them to pick five games they couldn't live without if they were put in this situation. Since we're Lave Radio, every out... <clears throat> Since we're Lave Radio, every outcast already gets a lifetime subscription to Elite Dangerous and a Game Boy copy of Tetris. Everything else is up to them. Tonight we're joined by Peter McLaren, creative director of Massive Damage and lead designer of their latest game, Halcyon 6. Hello, Peter, and welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for bringing me to this remote outpost that I'm abandoned on. <laughs> so we're stranded, stranded in the, the, the furthest reaches of space. And I'm also joined by my co-host, John Stabler. Welcome, John. Hey, good evening, and uh, well done, Peter. You're the first person who's actually kind of role-played the idea of being stuck <laughs> at the outpost. <laughs> I'm glad that I was so convincing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, you are you're the lead designer on uh, Halcyon Six, uh, which is a game which uh, went, was was funded through Kickstarter. You know, con- confession here: I'm, I'm one of the original Halcyon Six backers. Um, oh my god! And you <laughs> Thank have. You. Yeah, that's right. No worries. Uh, and you uh, have just brought out a new edition of Halcyon Six uh, called Halcyon Six Lightspeed Edition. So, can you just give us a bit of an introduction to to Halcyon Six? Uh, so Halcyon 6 is a strategy game. We, we often, while we were uh, making the game, you know, there were a lot of people being like, what are you making? All of these elements together, what is happening here? What, what's the genre? But the genre, I think, pretty squarely falls into strategy. It's a, uh, it's sort of a plot-based game with uh, many strategic elements. The idea that we kind of wanted to go with was taking a bunch of different ideas from 4X games, which I wouldn't say all of us, but many of us at the company were fans of from you know, back in the day and recently. Things like Master of Orion was probably the biggest influence on the gameplay side. But we basically wanted to take a number of ideas from a game like Master of Orion and then fold it into something that had more of a more of a traditional, more compelling story arc. So the basic breakdown of the game is you are a base federation style group of humanoids that have this ancient alien space station with mysterious powers. Basically, it's a post-apocalyptic scenario. The Federation's been destroyed by a bunch of flesh-eating, mysterious, trans-dimensional alien monsters. Cue the Master of Ryan 2 reference. And uh, you're the only one who can stop them thanks to your access to this uh, ancient precursor station that can birth starships out of some mysterious uh, matter creation process. Basically, the sort of structure of the galaxies collapsed, and you have to sort of venture forth, make contact with different alien factions, try to gain their support, 
you know, research new technologies, build up your base. The, you know, the base is sort of all these different rooms to explore and uh, encounter monsters, sort of space monsters in. Yeah, you're trying to sort of just evolve your capabilities up to the point where you can deal with this ancient evil alien mothership that uh, can bounce around the galaxy uh, using their mysterious powers. And there's a sort of a whole ancient alien grudge system that is sort of playing out during the course of the game. Yeah, that's the sort of breakdown. Uh, in terms of mechanics, there's base building, there's tech research, and then there's sort of a, a map that you send your fleets and fly around on to do quests. And there's also two different kinds of combat that use the same engine. It, there's a, a ground combat system where your officers, there's attacks and it's turn-based, and there's monsters. Uh, and then there's also a space combat system where your officers are flying spaceships around and, and a whole sort of... Uh, combo system using status effects and yeah we, we basically wanted to make a game whereby you could tell all the major parts of a sci-fi story within the within the game mechanics and then you've recently re released the line speed edition so i, I really like halcyon 6 um i but i really struggled to make progress with it so um, i think i <laughs> i think i sort of played the first like two or three hours of the game I must have played that about eight times <laughs> and I still hadn't kind of seen uh, any further. And I, I, I personally just found that I hit quite a sort of brick wall with the difficulty curve. Right, right. Now, now, is this the sort of thing that the Lightspeed Edition addresses? Because I know you've you've pitched it as a kind of streamlined and tweaked version of the game. Yeah, what, what, exactly. what does the Lightspeed Edition bring? It's, it's funny. With games like this, um, it's harder to make it zippy than it is to make it long. Like I think we aimed initially for a for about a six to eight hour playthrough, but the way that things just unfolded, it was closer to a twenty hour playthrough, which was not our intention. Uh, as we added new DLC and new updates, not not DLC, everything's been free, uh, but new updates, uh, it sort of elongated the game and and, uh, and uh, made the grind uh, a little heftier. So with Lightspeed Edition, we really wanted to bring it back home to that sort of like seven to 10 hour range that was our, our initial uh, intention with the game. So it is a bit zippier. The grind is definitely lessened and we wanted people to be able to get to some of the later content faster. We recently announced we're bringing it to iOS. We knew we needed to rework some of the UI to make that possible. So it was all sort of like part and parcel of the work we needed to do anyway. Uh, I wanted to ask about um, like the kind of Kickstarter experience. Um, it's always interesting to find out how, you know, how having it as a Kickstarter project, how the backers in any way kind of influenced the end product. Did any people come up with some ideas that you ended up implementing or anything like that? We definitely listened to all of the feedback and, and many of the questions that we, we received during the course of the Kickstarter really sort of jogged some of our creative direction. Some of the ways that the, the star map turned out was, was a, a long evolution that took place over, over several months and people would be sending us feedback on different design ideas that we were sort of slowly parceling out to them. In a lot of ways though, I feel like every game is almost it almost designs itself in a weird way. Like you end up going in the direction that the game forces you to go because you try something out that in your mind is going to work. You try it out and it doesn't work at all. And so you have to iterate. I, I think a lot of the best games 
do that, uh, or a lot, a lot of the best design games do that by necessity. I think that actually spans many different media. Like I used to write plays and I always find that at a certain point in the life of a play that you're writing, eventually you're pulled along to the direction that the play has to bring you rather than you being the master in a way. As much as we we took feedback and, and we incorporated that into the game, a lot of the times the game itself is kind of like the ultimate arbiter, if that makes sense. I'm kind of going into a uh, into a nebulous sort of area here, but no, 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 it makes sense. I mean, with it's, with anything, if you start if, once you've created like the basic world, it's amazing what kind of emerges from it, and then things that you would have never thought of, you know, when you first started out. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. And um, so, without getting into any spoilers, I'm I'm kind of amazed at how much your your games in this list have clearly you know been a big influence on Halcyon 6 and we've talked about that a bit already I mean you've created a very a very fresh and original feeling game which seems to take all the best elements from a lot of different things was this a deliberate goal or is this just part of sort of games influencing you in terms of design these were really the games that I reached for when uh first we were putting the project together uh it was it was more just a natural evolution when we first started putting the game idea together, it was like, you know, what what does this idea remind me of? What are elements that we can take from them? And I, I do think that, like, the games that you really get into and you, you know, play 100 hours, 200 hours of, they kind of stay with you forever. You always have them, like, kind of in a drawer in your mind. And you can just instantly, you know, in a meeting, you come up with an idea and just something clicks in your memory and says, oh, yeah, like, you know, that was done in, you know, this game that you played in, like, you know, 1997. Uh, and with that in mind, we'll move on to your first choice, uh, which is Crusader Kings 2. Rumor has it that your brother, the King of Lyon, is even plotting against you. But your fool of a spymaster has nothing useful to report. The swine's tongue has grown conveniently still ever since you started sleeping with his wife. As the year draws to a close, you find yourself friendless, penniless, possessed, and entirely in the dark, with the Moors sharpening their weapons on your borders in a word, doomed. What Crusader Kings 2 is, is a kind of classic strategy game, sort of uh, Europa Universalis uh, gameplay, but it's got this sort of social structure imposed on it, whereby, uh, like a whole, a whole social system that is connected to the gameplay, but kind of operates on a separate level from it, where the actual game takes place. In the game, it's a a sort of medieval uh, simulation of what the supercontinent, you know, Europe and North and Africa and Asia was like in uh, 1100 AD, where each province has a character that is basically, you know, the lord of that province. And the entire structure of nations is made up in a in a hierarchy going from count to baron to duke to king to emperor and basically the way that each character is structured in this hierarchy is also is also represented by like how the map goes so so a lord could swear allegiance to to say the king of france and and a part of the Holy Roman Empire that you're managing, you would then like come over to France and there'd be a war over, 
your decision to change allegiance, that sort of thing. And it's basically like a giant simulation that recreates like the actual historical hierarchical structure of Europe. On top of that, every character has families and there is, you know, you can be married to, uh, I mean, you can be male or female, but you can be married to another, uh, another lord over here. And then you're, you have kids and then your kids inherit both territories. And now you're kind of like a little mini state within a state. And then you rebel against uh, the king that your allegiance to, and then you become king. And it's a whole sort of like alternate historical simulator. Uh, and then on top of that, there's all these uh, those sort of procedural events that occur based on uh, on the characteristics of the people that are that are sort of like key to to your character. So if your younger brother is turns out to be a Satanist or something, maybe he'll go crazy and he'll try to kill you and he'll try to manufacture your assassination. And if you don't have kids, then you actually become that brother in the next playthrough, or not even the next playthrough. What it is is you sort of control a single character, and then when that character dies, you take over either the your kids, uh, their kids, or whoever your next your next heir is. So like, there's this whole like extra dimensionality dimensionality of who uh, your perspective is. Uh, so anyway, it's just this it's this crazy experiment of a game that basically mimics life in a way that I don't think any other game has. With the ink still wet on your gracious response, you make excellent use of the funds. Sending an assassin to call upon the king of Lyon, your dear brother. This will destroy your reputation, of course, or rather it would do were you not already known to be under the devil's sway demonic possession does have its power. the the kind of stories that it generates are are kind of incredible and they're all it's all based in terms of the game systems you see other other games that sort of borrow from it so sort of uh shadow of mordor is probably the most prominent example like this is a game that uses this sort of like social hierarchy to create this whole other part of gameplay that becomes the most memorable part of the game it's a fantastic game that everyone should play, uh, even if the UI is sort of unplayable. <laughs> <laughs> I did find that watching the videos. It was very hard to track uh, what was going on. But is that something that, I mean, is that something that you feel has influenced Halcyon 6? It was more just like the design philosophy behind Crusader Kings 2, which is, you, you can sort of tell by playing the game, which is more just like, let's take this experience of what is it like to be a, you know, a medieval lord or lady in the 1100s, and let's build everything around it. Like, let's take all of these different gameplay things and like cram it all in there and then see what, what comes out of it. That was sort of our design philosophy behind Halcyon 6. It was like, what are all the elements of a sort of epic sci-fi story that we would need to have? Okay, well, we would need some kind of you know ship combat, but we would also need some kind of ground combat. We would need tech research. We would need uh, exploration. We would need base building. We would need interactions with aliens. We you know so it's like that was sort of the way that we approached the game is just like okay, what do we need? What what are the things that we need in this game? Uh, and I feel like Crusader Kings too. That was sort of like their design philosophy as well. I'm kind of putting words in their mouth. Maybe it was just sort of an experiment that got out of hand. <laughs> I feel like that was sort of what 
fueled some of our, our design thinking behind the game? I think with a lot of these grand strategy games, it, I think the design of them deviates quite a lot from uh, some kind of a, some more usual forms of development where you kind of um, you create like a mechanic, you know, your basic game, your two minutes, as they call it. Um, you can't really do that with a grand strategy because you've got you, you've got to get you've got to create all of these moving pieces and put them together. So it's kind of hard, I guess, to kind of prototype it. Yeah, it's it definitely it it evolved a fair bit from our initial design to the eventual game. Just uh, a lot of it from the realities of just where the game brought us. But yeah, you're you're always sort of fighting those two things. Is with a grand strategy game, uh, and I wouldn't really call Halcyon Six a grand strategy game, though it is influenced by a, a number of grand strategy games. But with grand strategy, there's really no limit to what you can add uh, thematically. Y you can keep going and adding as much as you possibly can. Or my next game is is an example of that as well. And you need to sort of stop yourself. Uh, well, you've alluded to it already. Uh, your second choice is Dwarf Fortress. I'm actually surprised by Dwarf Fortress because it's a game that I'm sort of aware of. Uh, and I, when I'd seen pictures of it, I thought... Because it's got that kind of roguelike, ASCII look about it, um, I assumed that it was actually a much older game than it is. But it turns out that Dwarf Fortress is only about 10 years old. It is, <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, the funny thing about Dwarf Fortress is it's probably the, the most open source game of its kind. It, basically, when you're playing it, you are expected to use a fan-made plugin that changes the graphics. <laughs> <laughs> So it's funny. It's like there's many. There, there is no one dwarf fortress. There's many dwarf fortresses. You don't play ASCII. Oh, I'm disappointed. No, I don't. I don't play the ASCII version. <laughs> I feel bad. I think I tried to play it once. It's it's a big game. Oh, it's a slog. Uh, I mean, one of the you know, I really took your scenario uh, <laughs> literally, and uh, I'm part of the reason that I include Dwarf Fortress on the list is because I uh, I also sort of have to force myself to play it. Like, I never have enough time to actually uh, delve into it as much as I would like. But, I mean, in terms of the, uh, similar to Crusader Kings, the sheer number of game systems in it are endlessly, this isn't really a word, but analyzable. Like, you can just delve into it so deeply and pick it apart in that it is a game that's been being built for 10 years. And there's always new things being added to it. And again, this is sort of like what disproves my earlier point of you have to you have to limit yourself to things. Dwarf Fortress, it was never hit its limit. It's always, you know, new parts are being added to it and new incredibly minute details are, you know, become apparent as you play the game. Yeah, I'm amazed how um, how they balance it, you know, with so many moving parts and stuff being added all the time. A lot of effort must go into uh, making sure that nothing really breaks as soon as they add something. Though there's some hilarious stories about when things do break, but it's always very uh, it's always very narrative based. The cat started being able to like clean furniture because of a a cleaning liquid that it drank 
<laughs> it's like, and that, and really the cleaning liquid should kill the cat. It shouldn't be able to clean things with its tongue. Uh, it's like incredibly, it's incredible how so weirdly psychedelic the bugs are. Again, in terms of influence, I mean, so many games are influenced by Dwarf Fortress. It, it, it's kind of like the beginning of multiple sort of subgenres. I mean, Minecraft or or No Man's Sky. Like, the, I feel like Dwarf Fortress is really like the, the sort of nugget that spawned all those things. Uh, in terms of Age 6, I feel like one of the, I don't want to say failures, but one of my regrets with, with Age 6 isn't that it, that it isn't more like Dwarf Fortress. Like, we don't have the incredible amount of detail within the sort of, within the sort of self-contained uh, game mechanics and, and the way that they interact with each other. I, w- I would say we ended up going more towards the, a narrative sort of bent than I initially entailed with the game design. It just sort of naturally happened. I would say we definitely on the base building side, we were influenced again more by the more by kind of the feel of Dwarf Fortress rather than the individual mechanics. Originally, we were thinking we would go so far as to make, you know, build this desk in order to make the in, in order to make this room an office. And, and we just weren't able to do it. I'd say that that's one of the big one of the big regrets that we have, though, in the end, I think it ended up working better for us. Halcyon 6 has a, a a very kind of distinctive pixel art style, which is obviously very popular. A lot of games that are coming out at the moment, I'm seeing that, you know, pixel art's making a, a, a huge resurgence at the moment. Yeah, massive. Is that, a, is that a pragmatic decision? Because, as you say, you're a small development team and something like pixel art, you know, maybe the assets are easier to manage with a smaller art team? Or is it that you specifically, you know, wanted it to look like that because it is kind of part of the zeitgeist of independent game development. And it gives what is, as you say, quite a weighty 4X space game, a kind of comedic charm and character. For us, it was mostly we wanted to, we were making free-to-play mobile apps and we really wanted to get away from that. And we really looked at sort of who did we have at the company and what were the talents of the employees and you know we we had an artist and he was just incredible at pixel art like that that was just his focus in his spare time that's what he did and so we really were just looking at that and saying you know what we should just go this way we should just use the talents that we have to make this game and at the same time you know we were thinking of you know what is we wanted to make a space game and what are some like you know, memorable space games and, and what are, where are the games that we're drawing influence from? And, you know, Master of Orion 1 was one of the influences and, you know, that's a pixel art game. And I'm sort of, I'm sort of spoiling things, but uh, Star Control 2, that's a pixel art game. Uh, A lot of, you know, we're all sort of in our, our early to late thirties. And so early game, early nineties games all resonant heavily with everyone at the company. So, and of course the design also got influenced by that. Um, but on the on the sort of practical uh, side, I think that making a 3D game that can compete with larger companies is kind of impossible. 
And so you kind of have to sidestep that issue either by going with a pixel art game or with a or with a, a sort of a hand drawn 2D style, like kind of like what what Red Hook did with Darkest Dungeon. Like you can't succeed in the industry with the, without having a visually striking game. And so in order to do that, you need to set yourself apart from competitors who could crush you if they wanted to. Uh, and so this is a way of doing it. I, it's easier to make a, a absolutely beautiful pixel art game than it is to make like an absolutely beautiful 3D game. It's easy to make a crummy looking 3D game that it doesn't stand out in any way. Like that's not hard, but at the same time, it's not gonna serve you when your game gets to market. You kind of need to triangulate when you're coming up with a visual design of like, what is something that we as a small team can do that sets us apart from from the rest of the market. Uh, and of course, you know, we had all these uh, sort of nostalgic game design ideas. So we felt like a, a sort of nostalgic game art style really suited that as well. I think there was a bit of a kind of misnomer because people were very excited by FTL at a time that your Kickstarter was around. People were kind of saying, oh yeah, Halcyon 6 is going to be this thing that's, that's kind of like FTL. But I have to say that it's like, for me, it's not very like FDL at all. But it's when you see the turn-based battles with the ground crew, you start to think, well, actually, no, this isn't FTL. This is like, this is Chrono Trigger. This is this is Final Fantasy V. This is, you know, you've got that kind of turn-based sort of you know, team facing team, chucking spells and inflicting statuses. And I think for me, that pixel art style gets... That that's what it evokes in me. It evokes in me kind of sometimes feelings of of almost playing like this hybrid JRPG, you know, like uh, you know, like the the planetary map is kind of your overworld. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, one of the first things that we talked about. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to touch on uh, one more thing. I mean, obviously, <clears throat> with the web and with mobile and with steam now you know we've seen this kind of reemergence of indie game development but obviously you know the downside to that now is there's a lot of indie games out there and you, everyone's you're kind of vying for attention so i mean how did you set yourself apart with the game and how how did you market it successfully that's a incredibly good question and i wish i had if i had the answer to that like a a, a good answer to that i'm sure i could make many uh, like <laughs> a conference um, talk or something like a, a keynote or something like I, I wish I had the answer to how we broke away from just the sheer number of games that come out. I've told many people this, but when we launched, I was I was expecting us to be to be sort of ignored, uh, like to to not catch on. And we were incredibly lucky in many different ways. When we launched, we had a lot more, a lot more success than we expected. It, it, like when we launched, uh, we had we had sort of come off a, a decent but not stunning early access uh, run, and then when we launched in early September last year, we were able to get near the tar- top of the charts for you know uh, not too long for only a few days, but at the same time, it's enough to sort of start a snowball effect of uh, people. We had posts in, I think, Kotaku and, you know, other similar uh, blogs whereby they said, oh, here's this game that's selling really well that we've never heard of. 
it, it was it was funny. Like we we almost got attention from the fact that we were at the top of the charts, and then that fed back in a into uh, the Steam sales. So uh, they sort of like reinforced one another. So uh, I wish I had a, a an actual answer to to how we made ourselves known on the market. Uh, one thing that we did do that we did not actually intend to do was we made a game that was actually pretty streamable. For instance, the fact that we had a turn-based game that had fairly simple inputs and fairly number uh, limited number of decisions that you could make at any given point, sort of you know when a unit's turn comes up, especially near the beginning of the game, when you only had three, four powers to choose from, it made a kind of fun interchange between streamers and like the comments section of a stream, whereby the streamer would like ask, oh, what should I do next? And someone in the comment section would say, oh, you should choose this power and use it against like the third enemy. And so there was a very simple like back and forth that sort of like fueled streamers playing it and getting advice from their comment sections on what to do next. And so it was like a fun little interplay between players and and uh, their followers. On top of that, we didn't have voice acting for for the conversations with aliens. So that I've since learned, did not know this at the time, but that is great for streamers because streamers like to do, uh, you know, voices and put on accents and uh, read the lines out loud and have little like conversations between, you know, the player's lines and the character's lines, like things like that. These things that you wouldn't normally think of are actually really good for for harnessing that. And the fact that we launched on early access and, and we could sort of get streamers on board a little bit before launch also helped as well so we were able to get our name out there and of course the kickstarter alone i mean you know even even with kickstarter sort of losing steam i think that when you've had a, a successful kickstarter it still catches people's attention a little bit and it it sits in the back of their in the back of their brain like there's this name that comes up two years later and it's like oh yeah i've heard of that and sometimes that's enough to just to get people's uh, attention you might not have a keynote but there was some good insights there <laughs> <laughs> so moving on then your third choice is another big solar system galaxy spanning strategy game you have chosen alpha centauri learn to overcome the crass demands of flesh and bone for they warp the matrix through which we perceive the world extend your awareness outward beyond the self of body to embrace the self of group and the self of humanity. I mean, it's a popular enough game, um, but in terms of your choices, why why do you like Alpha Centauri over, say, Civilization? Funny thing about the relationship between those two games is that Alpha Centauri actually, it matches the mechanics better than Civilization does, in a way. Like, Civilization... You know, even the tech tree and the and buildings and managing cities and stuff, there's no actual one-to-one -one relationship with the way that history actually functions. Like, for instance, there's never been a nation that has started in 4000 BC that has made it to year 2000 or whatever in one unbreaking line. It's just it stretches credulity. It, it's not possible. And uh, to, to me, there's always this nagging thing at the back of your head when you're playing a civilization game of, of course, this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, whereas I find that Alpha Centauri, actually what it did was it took the gameplay of civilization and it actually married it to a setting whereby the mechanics made sense. 
and whereby it made a more compelling storyline within the game systems. And uh, it was, in, in a lot of ways, more immersive. Like, you could let yourself believe that this is the way that, you know, these units moved, and, and this is uh, the way that these cities developed, and this is the way that, like, tech is unlocked. And I think that, to this day, Alpha Centauri has the most sweeping take on human development and like human biology and and the way that alpha centauri it's all about intellectual stances it's not uh you know it's not a racial thing it's not it, it's all philosophical like this faction believes this and this faction believes that this is the way that human society functions and this and this faction believes otherwise uh it's just such an interesting idea that i think it's it's much more compelling than just you know these are the persians are over here and the russians are over here and the you know the uh, america in you know 1800 bc and they have george washington and i don't know it just completely takes me out of it every time <laughs> oh, it's quite interesting that that uh, i never really thought of games being impacted by having some kind of cultural baggage associated with them but i can kind of understand that you know, without that baggage, you're more inclined to try out different, well, not races or whatever, but different tribes or whatever, if, you know, you, you're not already biased against them. Because I take it a lot of Americans will want to just play the American side all the time and stuff like that. So I guess I'm I'm just a stickler for sort of historical simulation that gets in depth, whereas, and civilization to me seems like a sort of pop version of history of course like the game systems are amazing in civilization i mean unbelievable and the controls and the way that the games pace and everything it's fantastic but i i was found that the the actual theme on top of it always left a bad taste in my mouth whereas alpha centauri uh, i don't know I, I i still think that the aesthetics of alpha centauri are beautiful and the the voice acting is amazing and the the way that they incorporate sort of like world literature and and philosophy into uh, game aspects is really incredible and, and to this day still hasn't really been matched. So your next choice is really interesting uh, because it's a game which I, I'd never played, which I, I hadn't realised is so influential to so many designers. Uh, this is Star Control 2. I would say if, if you know, gun to my head, uh, my favorite game of all time, definitely Star Control 2. Most influential game to myself, is, especially, I mean, Halcyon 6, it's literally what if, what if Star Control 2 took place in Master of Orion? Like that is basically the fundamental, if there, if there were two games that were combined into, at least into the, the sort of setting of Halcyon 6, it would be those two games. It's really interesting, and it and it's funny because you're you're the second designer that I've spoken to who's who's cited kind of Master of Orion and Star Control Two as massive influences. Um, and what's really interesting is you've both ended up with really different games. <laughs> Absolutely. Who who mentioned that? Uh, this is, I've done. If you played the Long Journey Home, and it definitely rings a bell. Yeah, the Long Journey Home is a gravity flight type game where you're basically you're you're bringing a, a stranded crew 
back through space, jumping from star to star to try and get back to Earth. And along the way, you're kind of flying around these these planets and mining for resources and talking to alien NPCs. And what's really interesting, though, is that looking at The Long Journey Home, looking at Halcyon 6, they're two completely different games, but you can see how they're both influenced by Master of Orion and Star Control 2, which is sort of, you know, it's fascinating that you're, you're kind of both your takeaways from it are, are kind of so different. Cool. So, I mean, with Star Control 2, because we're talking about sort of, what is it? It's like 97, 98? Uh, no, it's 92. I is believe. it that old? Is it? Okay, I thought it was later. Yeah, yeah. So was this, I mean, you've already kind of mentioned your age or you're a similar age to me. Was Star Control 2, was that kind of a watershed game for you in terms of gaming and what, like, what could be achieved? Definitely one of the, it's, it's funny, it's my, uh, my cousin was a bit of a gamer um, less so now, but uh, my older cousin at the time. And he really was the one who introduced me to two games that are still... So Star Control 2 was one of them, and I still remember playing it on floppy disk. I think it came with... I think it was 10 floppy disks, something like that. I, I, I might be wrong about that. And the other one was uh, TIE Fighter. And that those were really the first two games that I really played a lot of when I was, uh, you know, 10 years old sort of thing. But uh, Star Control 2 was instantly, actually, no, I, I remember, I mean, this was so long ago, but I, I remember I had to sort of work to get into it a bit. It has a, a, a sort of like player versus player mode, uh, it, which is called Super Melee, where you're playing two different sets of ships and one ship at a time, they fight each other and, uh, and you have complete control over them. Uh, and, and, and I didn't know for a while, in, until he sort of walked me through it, that there was the um, campaign mode, and the campaign is to this day one of the one of the great single player uh, games ever made. I believe it was incredibly open world. It, it, you could travel to. I think there were there must have been three hundred, four hundred stars, something like that, and each star had you know all these planets that you could go down and like mine resources from. Uh, but then there was this whole like adventure that was really compelling, and uh, it, it whereby you know hum, you know humanity had basically been in, uh, enslaved and defeated in this war that happened in Star Control One, and you were kind of the only person who could orchestrate its humanity's recovery. Basically, to this day, probably the funniest game ever written though i i maybe some of the monkey island games could compete with it but in, an incredible marriage of sort of arcade uh really easy to uh, catch on mechanics uh on the combat side and this incredible open universe adventure with strategy elements like you have a main ship and and, and you're using resources to build it up and and it, yeah, uh, and then just this uh, this like really kind of gripping storyline as well that sort of guides you through it and uh, an incredible amount of sort of variety of different interactions with different aliens. And I, I, I wish I could say that, you know, Halcyon 6 like uh, was able to to get close to how good Star Control 2 was in terms of the, the setting and storyline. But uh, it was more just like we were grasping at it, hoping to try to make some of the magic rub off on us. <laughs> but is that where those kind of NPC dialogue screens come from? Because you spend a sort of a lot, not a lot of your time, but a lot of the kind of 
really entertaining sort of story events in Halcyon 6 involve the kind of ambassadors of the different alien societies yeah. coming to your station and kind of appearing on your screen. Um, what, you know, is that something that's directly sort of influenced by Star Control 2? Absolutely. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, there's no, uh, yeah. I mean, I can't even think of another game that does it quite the same way. Like we, we went full out with, uh, you know, these dialogues with different groups and each alien race had their own music and would have these funny animations that they would do while talking to you. Like we completely went full out with that. And I did my best to like write the, the dialogues to be as funny as I could using the different sort of demeanors that the different races had. And I was really, uh, that was really what I was reaching for with that. Yeah. I liked I liked the thing in H six with the um, like the Borg like race trying out a slightly friendlier voice module. I thought that was uh, <laughs> yeah yeah that was good. <laughs> it's funny though, like I remember uh, it, it is kind of my default mode of like and initially I was trying to make it a bit more serious and everything and and some of the early stuff still comes off kind of serious, but then I was I was just experimenting with different things and I was like ah hell <laughs> I'll just make them as funny as I can. Yeah, I think we need more comedy in games. I think it's something that's often overlooked. Definitely. Comedy is, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it takes a lot of work is the thing. If you pull it off and there's no better sort of mind meld between, you know, between the writer and the and the reader as with comedy. It's it's really a, a, a thing where you need to you need to write it from the consumer's or the player's point of view and and communicate to them with these like you know funny ideas and twists and and stuff if you can pull it off it's i i find it's really immersive actually i think the problem is is uh you know a lot of developers probably shy away from it or uh simply because with you know the internet and games now you know internationalized humor doesn't always translate easily cultures. Uh, no. <laughs> so it's true it's it's sort of a maybe our sort of anglo privilege over here but like yeah in terms of like having such a, you know having the biggest market in terms of english language speech speakers it's it's sort of an unfair advantage that we have but i mean gotta you have to work whatever you can and you say you look at triple a games you don't get a lot of like really really funny games i mean even say like GTA 5, which is a tremendously funny game in parts. They, it, it's sort of all over the place in terms of tone. And, and it's always competing itself of just being really like gritty and gory. And But then there's also these like moments of really uh, genius comedic bits, but it, it, it's even sort of there. It's pretty uneven, probably because the sheer number of people working on it. Yeah, I think with GTA, maybe, I don't know, because it's basically a parody of western culture in a way yeah and in some ways it's become a parody of itself as well so if yeah, you follow yeah, the series, then there's a lot of fun to be found there yeah but i think as well there's an opportunity in gaming to do kind of different types of humor like i'm thinking about something like uh i, I guess maybe like worms like was a good example which kind of grew out of the sort of physical comedy of lemmings the idea that you've got these really kind of tiny pixel characters who are kind of catapulting themselves around the screen in various explosions was kind of you know it was kind of charming and funny and, and in a sense it was the humor that made worms 
a really successful game and a really successful franchise. Because in terms of gameplay, it was no different to tanks. You, it could have been super gritty. Yeah. And, and exactly. Slapstick is a bit more universal as well. You know, it does travel well. Whereas, you know, kind of jokes in dialogue, not so much. But I think what's interesting about that is that that's comedy that is specifically related to the actual gameplay. It's not like, you know, something like Uncharted 2, where they've just got good writers and they've got good actors to perform the lines and it's like a funny, the same way a movie might be funny. This is something that is actually comedy that arises out of the gameplay situation you find yourself in. And that's got to be a really challenging kind of new area for comedy because that's, you know, there's no precedent for that. Again, sort of similar, all of these big AAA franchises, they have this incredibly serious gameplay and then they have these, they have like cutscenes which can occasionally have like a, a pretty funny joke in it. It's just, it's just, I don't know, it feels a little bit like cheating. Personally, I like, I don't play games with cutscenes. Like I can't do it. I'm very weird that way. I mean, like, yeah, like I can, I can tell that The Last of Us was like a, a great game, a, like a historically great game. But like, I skip the cutscenes, which people make fun of me for, pro- rightfully so. But like, I'm so, I'm always disappointed when the quality of a game is is uh, is like wrapped up within the cutscenes. I, I I just don't think that that's right. I think that there's something improper about that. <laughs> I kind of with you on that one. For me, cutscenes it's like a shortcut. Or a, a cheat. It's a it's a way. I don't know. It's, it's it's a way of giving you like narrative that's outside of the gameplay, and I find it quite jarring. I felt that about uh, Shadow of War as well. It's like Shadow of War is just such an incredible. It's such an incredible game in terms of like the mechanics, and uh, and and the systems working together. But then you like cro- You know, you turn a corner, and a cutscene happens. It's like, what is happening here? This is not what I want. I don't want. I don't want to be talking to this character. Who is this person? Like, I don't care about them. Like, I want to go back to, like, my weird interactions with orcs. Because, you know, those are all system-based. And all of the, I don't know, all of the, the dialogues with people, like, I just don't care. I don't care about this storyline at all. I want, I want to engage with the game. I want to play the game. I think, for me, the only cutscenes that ever seemed to work were, like, things in, like, Resident Evil. I don't know why that is, though. I think there's one question I wanted to ask you because just because of the kind of games that you're into, and we've talked to, you know, we've talked to a few developers doing this this show. And it's interesting that even though you've all picked, generally you've all picked different choices, it seems to me the designers we've spoken to do tend towards these quite big, involved, strategic, open world type games. Do you think that's something that's part of a game designer's mindset that you're drawn to these types of games? Or do you think it's just a coincidence that the ones we've spoken to just happen to be in strategy games and that there are game designers who are equally influenced by, say, I don't know, shooters? I, I guess I'm still fairly new to the industry. I mean, I've only been in the industry and only really in the indie game industry for like three years now. But And beforehand, it was iPod or uh, iPhone games and iPad games but like I legitimately am not sure what a game designer on a shooter does not to I'm sure I'm sure it's very important but like I in terms of like you know designing game feel and and level design and stuff like that like I understand that but I don't know what I, I feel like shooters are so like are so 
set in stone exactly what the mechanics are that I don't really know what the day-to-day job would be in terms of like, you know, maybe designing new weapons or something like that. But like, I just, I don't know what, what they do. Whereas when you're, when you're designing a, 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 you know, a, a new game that, that combines different systems to me, I understand. Okay. I, I understand like what, like what your job is. Your job is to deliver this like new thing that's never been done before. And you're, you have to design the screens. Like you have to design like what does a what do the menus look like? What like what is the inputs on this? And to me, like that's what I do with you know most of my days. And uh, and I feel like yeah, you're always drawing all these influences, or you're drawing from influences of games that are really complex and really try to do these you know weird things, and in a lot of ways maybe fail. And you're trying to like come up with new new versions of it. So like. Yeah, like something like Crusader Kings 2 or Dwarf Fortress, you know, these are games that have these incredible systems where there's a lot to learn from. Say like the UI is is barely usable for both of them. And so it's it's a question of like taking something that's been done before and and trying to like steal ideas from and then package them in a way that um, that no one else has quite tried and and maybe you'll succeed and maybe you'll fail. To me, like I understand that it's like you're you're mining these old games for ideas and and trying to reproduce them. So those are the games that you end up being intensely interested in. And if you're not interested in them, then you know you're not you're not gonna have that much success in creating something that feels new, at least, um, or because you're you know you're combining different things together in ways that other games haven't. Like I I, I think that that is kind of the through line with all indie games at least all indie games that have a degree of success is that they're, you know, you can't compete with the big guys. Uh, the only thing you can do is you can offer something new. Even games that are sort of like, say if someone comes out with like Homeworld, it's basically exactly Homeworld because no one else has done a Homeworld recently. Well, you release it, you're not going to have that much success, even though there's not that many people who have done, you know, a Homeworld like in the last, you know, 10 years. You need to bring something new to the table. And so you need to mine ideas from from older games because those are the ones that maybe haven't been overly picked over. And so I, I think to to be a game designer, you have to have an intense interest in in these kinds of imperfect but interesting older game ideas. That's where you're going to be able to draw your influence from. I think there's a lot to do with this kind of innovation versus evolution of games. Shooters have famously been really popular. And so over time, you know, what's what's popular has kind of guided the developers and they've been honed to this kind of this place now where if, if you deviate from the usual shooter template, then the, the consumers find that quite jarring. It does happen every so often. Yeah. And, and I, I don't want to sort of uh, I don't want to downplay what uh, the achievements in, you know, in shooters like I mean, Overwatch is like obviously incredible amount of like really interesting detail has gone into that i don't know what people at blizzard do because like they're so incredible at their jobs i have no idea how they uh, how they're able to produce what they're able to produce i mean it's really inc- it's really incredible the quality of the work that they do uh or say you know uh, i haven't played it yet but uh, destiny 2 is apparently really excellent in the in the way that they've sort of evolved shooter mechanics 
Okay, so having said that you're drawn to deeply complex and heavily strategic titles, your last choice on this list has thrown us a little bit of a curveball, <laughs> and we're we're struggling to see the influence on Healthy and Six. You've chosen NBA 2K. My one token embarrassing, not really embarrassing, because I do think NBA 2K is a great game franchise. <laughs> but yeah, definitely the game that has the least to do with Halcyon 6. Though you could argue roster management elements, because there's the whole general manager mode where you're managing a team and you're making trades and you're assigning your guys to tasks. And so you could argue a little bit of influence there, but mostly it's more just like, what is my go-to sports game if I have friends over and I don't think sports games are completely unprecedented I mean we've had two guests on now who've gone for football management games so oh yeah yeah there is room for sports for game developers you don't have to feel guilty (laughs) (laughs) with this with these NBA series is it just that you you know is it just that you really love basketball and this game does it really well or is there something else that NBA 2k kind of brings to gaming for you I do follow the NBA, uh, less so now than I used to. But the way that I got into the NBA was through NBA 2K. So it's sort of a self-reinforcing thing. Like, I had never watched a basketball game in my life, but, you know, I had a Xbox in university, and my roommates, who I'm very close with, you know, they were big NBA fans. They were big Raptors fans. And so they bought, like, a used copy of NBA 2K5 or something, or 2K4, and uh, they got me into NBA through that. It was through the game because it, it, it's sort of like an endlessly fascinating set of mechanics in a funny way. Like I still think of the actual NBA in terms of, you know, what are players, what are they good at? What are they good at in the game? What are their stats? Like it, you can actually break down the NBA fairly similar to an RPG in terms of, you know, what is what is a player's height? What is their ability to shoot from different distances how fast are they how maneuverable are they how well can they dribble like what is their capacity to do different actions on the court to me nba 2k is like kind of a lens that i look at a lot of uh like a lot of simulation games through and it's still sort of yeah it always sticks with me sometimes you forget that with a lot of people when they're when they're playing nba 2k the quality of the game is so high that they forget that they're playing a game whereas sometimes when i'm watching an nba game i forget that i'm not playing nba 2k (laughs) (laughs) because i still think about it through that lens Uh, i think it's the best sports game and the most uh sort of technical achievement in in sports franchises even though they engage in the same sort of deplorable behavior of every year releasing a new one even though it's only a slight change from the previous year I still think that, you know, hats off to them in, in terms of just being able to deliver an incredible simulation. The only uh, basketball game I ever played was NBA Jam on the SNES. Um, <laughs> Not so... a incredible one-to-one simulation of reality. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. Whether, does that make it a sensible soccer of, of uh, basketball? I don't know. You raise a really interesting question, though, because you're talking about how you can kind of use like stats and RPG-like uh, attributes to describe real players. One of the things I'm, I'm interested in is um, how much 
NBA 2K or, or even Halcyon 6 allows for randomness because I think that randomness is a big discussion that's happening at the moment between game designers and players on the basis that game players don't really seem to like randomness. If you, if you look at the kind of negative criticism that's been leveled at stuff like, I don't know, like, like for me and John stuff we know, like, like Chaos Reborn, the, the random element in that was was obviously a big source of, of, of hurt. Uh, and also like XCOM and XCOM 2, famously, the one thing everyone always says is like how the guy misses a shot where he's like six feet from the alien and he's got a shotgun. But obviously, if you're looking at statistics to describe like a human player, like you might have a basketball player who, you know, nine times out of ten will make a basket from a certain distance. But on the day and in the moment, like even the best players can miss. I mean, does that translate into the the video game version of NBA? You know, do you take a shot that you think your character should make, but actually they miss, or is it down to you? Or how does that how does that relationship with 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 real world luck kind of play out? Um, it's definitely a sort of a psychological trick, I think, to some extent. I mean, it, in NBA, the, there's definitely sort of inbuilt elasticity in the game, which is, uh, I mean, it's weirdly, it weirdly kind of makes sense in reality with, with the actual NBA, but like, whereby there's all these tricks to make sure that the game is close. I think it's, it's more almost skewed that way. They're, they're pretty guarded about how, about the actual number calculations. And there are, there's certain aspects of reflexes that are pertinent to it as well, but it's tough. And in terms of a game design, from a game design point of view, uh, randomness is just the most valuable tool if you can harness it. And it's always going to be an arm wrestle between between wanting to make sure that there's a certain element of surprise and, and certain, in some cases, sort of delightful surprise, like if you get a critical hit or whatever, and also having everything just be um, systems-based and having they're actually and having everything being very predictable. I think it's always something that's going to be navigated. Certain games they rely too much on it. I don't know, like Civilization. I find that some of the some of the uh, attack rolls and stuff. It just it feels like they're over relying on randomization. And XCOM is probably, yeah. I mean, at, in, on one side, XCOM is to me the best new franchise of the last five years. Easily the best new major franchise to come out in games. But at the same time, it yeah, it, it just like goes back to the randomness well a little too much. The problem with XCOM is that a missed shot is a death knell. Like it's can completely ruin a playthrough if you're playing on Iron Iron Man mode. And so, yeah, I, I, I they really incentivize people to play sort of easily or to save spam. NBA, it's a little bit different because, you know, whether or not you miss a shot is not necessarily going to completely uh, destroy your experience. And in the NBA, yeah, absolutely. People do miss free throws. People who are 93% free throw shooters, they miss a free throw every so often. It's it, it, it needs to it needs to happen. The way that they can do that artfully is going to be a major game design challenge. Uh, but on the other hand, like, you know, uh, there is a 15% chance that uh, Donald Trump would win the American presidency. And unfortunately, <laughs> we all got a big... Uh, we all got a big uh, lesson in statistics and probability. <laughs> yeah, they they crit failed that role, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So it happens, and so in, in a way, it's sort of realistic that you have to build in a, a little bit of randomness in in your game design. 
I, I think with randomness and like, for instance, maybe there's a kind of generational thing involved where, you know, when games were new and people were coming from like board games and things like that, they were used to the idea of rolling dice. And so people like kind of my age and bef- a bit older than me, you know, they were more willing to accept that. And so that's why there was not a problem with the original chaos. But then when Chaos Reborn comes out, it's a different generation, different players who haven't come from that angle and so it, they react more negatively to it. People, people are coming to games now from different places. You know, like my son, he's, he's six, and he discovered games through a tablet. And it's only now that he's getting older that I can actually play card games or, like, you know, like normal tabletop games with him. You know, I, I think people are just coming at it from different places, and so they react differently. And uh, I was listening to a podcast by... Um, David Serlin, and he was talking about randomness in games, and I thought it was quite interesting because his, the example he was using was like um, uh, fighting games, like Street Fighter. You know, you've got um, you've got like controls and moves that you perform on a, on a gamepad, which can be so difficult. You're not guaranteed to get it every time. You're not really testing that person's ability to play the game from like a strategic point of view. You're just testing their physical abilities, which you know, from an accessibility point of view, from modern game designer, you know, that's a bad idea. And so his suggestion was, rather than making controls difficult, why not make them easy and then just build in an RNG so that it fails sometimes? And technically, you know, he's right in that new players would would enjoy that. But pro players who seem to think that being really dexterous and hitting 60 millisecond frames with a joypad is a, a skill. Um, that should be being tested in a game. So, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, who do you make the game for? Are you making it for the big competitions, you know, East Coast versus West Coast, or are you making it for, you know, for people to get into the game and play it and enjoy it? See, I, th- I think I'm the worst kind of player because I have a very different attitude to video games than I do to board games. So if you give me something in a board game that has like a 90% chance to hit, if I roll a D10 and I roll a 1 and I fail, that's fine. That's a dice roll. You know, I'll take that. Whereas if I'm playing a game like Halcyon 6 and it tells me that my character is 90% to hit, I expect that to hit. Like, as far as I'm concerned, like a 90% chance to hit in a video game it should just be an auto hit. I, I fully agree with that. I'm going to talk to the producer. Are all the stats in Halcyon 6, are they all genuine and calculated as displayed? They are. I, I, we probably should uh, should lie about it a bit more and uh, <laughs> and do the whole the whole sieve thing of saying it's you know ninety five and it's actually one hundred and seventeen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that the I know that the Chroma Squad guys said that they actually programmed in a thing on the um, the the mecha the kaiju fights where if you were doing your first punch and your stats were over ninety percent, they just let the first one hit regardless of the RNG calculation. Yeah, we need to to break rules a little bit more. Anyway, you've given us loads of time. Thank you so much for talking to us, Peter. Oh, no problem. Thanks for, for inviting me. I have a I have a whiny uh, a whiny puppy who just arrived. Um, a good luck <laughs> with the Lightspeed edition of Halcyon Six. Thank you. Uh, which to our listeners, obviously, is available on uh, Steam.
so you thanks very much to Peter and Massive Damage. We have some keys available for Halcyon 6 Lightspeed Edition. Uh, if you would like to win one of those, you just need to get in contact with the show and tell us if you could take a group of games and create a new mega game based on the, your favourite features from each of them, what would you create? So a little bit of a creative one for you uh, this time. You can send us those ideas at facebook.com forward slash lave radio. You can email us at info at lave radio.com. Or if you're a real sucker for punishment, uh, you can send us loads of tweets with your design in. Uh, we're on Twitter at lave radio. The competition closes 31st of October. Thank you very much for joining us again, Peter. Uh, and hopefully we'll chat to you soon. Thank you. And thank you, John Stabler. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time. Remote Outpost Games is a Lave Radio podcast with sound production and editing by RadiotheatreWorkshop.com. Your hosts were Christopher Jarvis and John Stabler, and the music was by PurplePlanet.com. Purple Planet.